Um, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. May God bless the reading of his word. So something occurred to me this week as I was writing this, that this chapter is really a chapter about abiding. Where do we abide in our lives? Um, and that's, I think the word abide occurs a good 10, 15 times just in this one chapter. So one of these times I recommend you go through it again and just count how many times it talks about abiding and who we abide in and what we abide in, and you'll find that you're pleasantly surprised. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, so let's continue. Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. John continues the letter by reflecting on the lying theme found previously. He asks rhetorically, who is the liar? The lying here does not necessarily lean toward an ethical stance, um, which lying generally denotes. Instead, the real focus here is on a theological truth versus an untruth. The one who lies holds to the untruth we will be reviewing shortly. It should be noted, though, that lying or failing to accept a certain theological truth can and will lead to a lifestyle which is contrary to the truth. And in this way, once the theological lie has been established, it will naturally lead to ethical lying in a person's life, as John has said previously. John then completes his rhetorical question by claiming that the liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. To deny Jesus is the Christ is to deny many of the significant teachings of the gospel, from human sin to the necessity of redemption through Jesus. Likewise, when we consider Jesus as the Christ, we understand it means also his messiahship, which is why John concludes that those who claim Jesus is not the Christ is a liar. John takes it a step further, however, by claiming that such individuals are the Antichrist. This is not meant to be understood as the Antichrist to come, but one of those Antichrists who were mentioned in the previous verses that we talked about last week. Such individuals are Antichrists because they teach things contrary to Jesus' teaching on himself and the apostles' teaching, which align with Jesus' own teaching. This leads John to conclude that those who do make this anti-confessional statement of Jesus do not only deny the Messiahship of Jesus, but also deny the Father and the Son. These are dire statements to make. It implies that those who may claim to know God and yet do not grasp these truths about Jesus in the end are far from God. Now we come to verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. At this point, we have a dichotomy before us. Uh, there are two groups of individuals which John is focusing on. The first are the deniers, and the second are the confessors. The result of denying the Son is that one does not have the Father. Conversely, to confess the Son is to have both the Son and the Father. So the question we want to ask is, what does John mean when he says, has the Father? The best way to answer this is to go back to the beginning of the book. There we find this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The first thing we notice then is life. The Father has eternal life, and the eternal life has been made flesh. To not have the Father, then, is to not have the life. Consequently, to have the Father is to have eternal life. The life itself is Jesus, who is the Son. Therefore, confessing the Son is to have the Father also. The second thing to consider is from the same chapter, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. While the great focus may be eternal life, we also consider what it means for God to be light. For those, for those to have the Father are those who also have the light. The same light is the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ, as we find in the Gospel of John. Therefore, these two groups cannot be intermingled. To deny, is to, have the, to deny is not to have the life or the light, and to confess is to have both life and light. Now this leads us to verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. John continues by reminding his readers what they heard from the beginning. The beginning here is not the beginning of all time, but to the first time they heard the proclamation of the gospel. Earlier in the chapter, we encountered this reality, that the gospel message will save, and in saving will change one's lifestyle from darkness to light and love. It is the entirety of this that John is focusing on, the whole gospel which provides propitiation for sin and causes one to live differently. And so he admonishes them to abide in that truth. And from this, John recognizes that if what they heard from the beginning abides in them, then they will in turn abide in the Son and in the Father. We notice that this is both present and future. It is present in that what they have heard abides in them here and now, and in the future when we recognize that the Son and Father will abide in them. This all leads us to the next verse. But before we get there, ultimately this furthers the dichotomy between those who belong to the community and those who do not. Those who do not abide in the teaching which they have heard from the beginning do not abide in the Son or the Father. Yet if that teaching does abide in them, then the Father and Son will also abide in them. This comes to verse 25. And, in this, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The future result of the Son and the Father abiding in the individual is a promise which has been made, and that is eternal life, as John says. In the ancient world, life was always overshadowed by death, and it would appear that this is the same for our own time as well. Death is something which we all have to acknowledge at one point or another. Yet the promise for those in whom the gospel abides is eternal life. That which came in the flesh, which they had witnessed, they can receive. Yet, we also notice it is not through their own merit or ability that this can be attained. Instead, it is the power of the message itself which allows us to attain this eternal life. By God's grace, it comes in full circle, the eternal life given to those who are originally in death. We then come to verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And this is a quick note. It, 
It is much debated where this last verse falls. Some have it with the previous verses and others have it with the verses to follow. Ultimately, I decided to put it here with this week's sermon since it forms a nice conclusion to the beginning of this section which started with verse 21 um, where it says, I write these things and then he ends with, I write these things. John writes, um, John writes to these communities because of those who are trying to deceive. Though they may be attempting to deceive the communities, it is clear that they have not yet succeeded. So John writes to the communities in hopes of shedding light on the situation, on the improper theology which the deceivers are teaching, and to provide truth doctrines by which the communities can maintain fellowship with each other and with the apostles, and therefore with Jesus and the Father. So the main point of these verses are to provide a dichotomy between those who deny Jesus as a Christ and those who confess Jesus as the Christ. For those who deny... Jesus is the Christ. In the end, um, they are propagating false teachings about God. Those who confess Jesus as the Christ and in whom abides the truth, they will receive the promise of eternal life. The logical conclusion is that those who deny will not receive the promise of eternal life. All right, so this leads us to the first application point. I promised everyone last week we'd get to this. Antichrist, the deniers. As we have seen throughout this section, there have been two groups of individuals. The first group are the deniers, and the second group are the confessors. We will try to focus on both of these groups with the hope that we will check ourselves against what John has said to make sure that we are in the right group rather than the wrong group. We'll begin with the deniers, and right away we notice that John calls them Antichrist. We all know this term, Antichrist. We have all heard about the Antichrist who is to come. We know some things about this Antichrist, and there is also much we don't know. We do not know when this person will arrive, for example. But we do know that the individual will be lawless. Likewise, we know that the Antichrist is such that it causes authors to be bestsellerless for a long time. Um, We as people are fascinated with this term and the one who is to come. Yet John recognizes that before the one Antichrist can come, there will be others who come first. Today, we need to focus on them. Before we can begin, we need to dissect the word Antichrist. There are those who automatically assert that the Antichrist will be someone who replaces Jesus. One who will come along and fool people into believing that he is the true Messiah. The truth is that there are elements of this, as we will see shortly, but the question is, what does the term Antichrist mean in and of itself? Well, that takes us to breaking down the word. Anti means against, and Christ means Messiah. So when we see the word Antichrist, the first thing that we should come to our mind is someone who is against the Messiah. This is helpful information, but John also gives us more information concerning those who are Antichrist during his time. As you remember, he said in verse 18 through 19, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. From this... We learn that these Antichrists were once part of the community, but as it is, they left. This is an important thing to consider. These individuals who are Antichrists knew the gospel. They looked and appeared as though they had been regenerated, but in the end, they were not, as they left the community and began to teach doctrines contrary to the gospel of truth. 
This is sorrowful because these individuals believe that they have true knowledge of God through the doctrines that they proclaim. They believe they have fellowship with God, yet they do not. We can surmise some of these individuals have proclaimed in some capacity by looking at what John has said already. So let's look at this. Consider a few statements John has made thus far in chapter 1. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. All sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now we notice the discussion focuses on lying and its antonym, the truth. To walk in darkness yet proclaim Christ is a lie. Claiming to have no sin is self-deception, and it's a lie. Saying we have not sinned makes him a liar because he proclaimed us to be sinners, and therefore shows that the word is not in us. Likewise, John continued this lie and truth motif in chapter 2 when he said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And finally concludes, in a way, with the verse we have read today. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Interestingly enough, we see an individual who denies some of the basic tenets of the gospel, in particular our need of redemption and the redemption found in Jesus and what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Lord of our lives. To deny any one of these or all of them is to lie about knowing the Father and the Son. This has interesting ramifications for our society today, especially for American churches, don't you think? As we have noticed, there has been a tendency for many congregations to begin accepting certain lifestyles which are contrary to the scriptures. In fact, they're willingly saying that the scriptures either do not call these lifestyles sinful, which is a lie, or they make the claim that in Christ it doesn't matter, also a lie. Either of these are a problem with what we have read here in 1 John and, well, the rest of the scriptures in general. It's at this point we have to ask ourselves, aren't such teachings antichrist? Isn't this the ultimate conclusion John comes to concerning the individuals who have left the doctrines and teachings of the apostles and Christ himself and then proclaim alternative teachings and doctrines concerning sin and Christ, that they are antichrists? Is it possible that many of our very congregations, by holding doctrines and teachings contrary to the doctrines and teachings of the church found in the scriptures, are placing themselves outside of the community which John wrote? Are we teaching Antichrist teachings? Are we allowing Antichrist teachings to be proclaimed, false teachings, lies to be proclaimed, and yet we say nothing? Another question might be, how did we even get here? How is it that so many congregations are accepting sinful lifestyles as though it doesn't matter? A major player is bad teaching. We have allowed bad teaching to enter our congregations through bad preaching. We have pastors who refuse to talk about sin. Why? Because sin doesn't sell. People don't want to hear their depravity. They don't want to hear their lifestyles need to be changed. They don't want to hear their desperate need for the gospel. They want to hear God is love and accepts you exactly as you are 
no strings attached. Well, in that case, why should I stop sinning? Why should I live any differently before I began believing in God and after? Answer, there is no reason. So we have millions of individuals who have no idea what the gospel is, have no idea what sin is, and have no idea that they're, they're breaths away from hell. And it's because we as a people prefer antichrist teachings over Christ teachings. You see, that is an antichrist um, we all need to be cautious of. We can spot the atheist naturalist who claims God does not exist. Yes, that is a type of antichrist teaching. Yet how many of us are aware of the false teachers and preachers within our midst? How many have carefully considered the possibility of false teachings being proclaimed even from this pulpit or other congregations' pulpits around us, on the radio, on the TV? We are warned repeatedly to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. We are warned repeatedly of false prophets. Why do we have such an issue believing that a false prophet might be a teacher or a preacher who sounds nice? Why do we conclude that a false prophet is only an individual who declares that Jesus is returning May 21st, 2010, which did not happen? False prophets aren't only those who make false predictions, but also teach false doctrines. Who proclaims teachings contrary to that of the scriptures? Proclaim darkness, and guess what? They will sound nice to those who hear them. Our congregations are full of antichrists who deny Jesus Christ his due. By denying the repercussions of sin, we deny Jesus Christ. By proclaiming other ways for salvation, we deny Jesus Christ. By turning Jesus into an accessory and not letting him be the Lord of all, we deny Jesus Christ. By making the claim that we do not need redemption, we deny Jesus Christ. By claiming God loves us just as we are and that there is no need for repentance in our lives, we deny Jesus Christ. When we say we can attain salvation with our works, we deny Jesus Christ. To deny Jesus Christ is to be an antichrist. Are we antichrist in our thinking? Are we denying Jesus Christ what he deserves from us? Are we denying truth for a lie? Are we testing our teachers according to the scriptures? There are millions of individuals who listen and watch evangelists on the radio and TV. Not all of them are bad. But how many times have you stopped to consider, or have they even, stopped to consider whether or not what they're proclaiming um, is true? If they are the same doctrines, the same teachings as the scriptures? Not taking them out of context, that is, to fit their teaching, but actually teaching what the scriptures say themselves. It is our responsibility as members of this congregation, as members of the body of Christ, to test everything according to the scriptures. As your pastor, I don't care if I'm the one preaching on Sunday or if it is someone else who's filling in. Test everything according to the scriptures. The truth is too important to let go for the sake of a lie. Don't fall prey to a lie, but desire the truth, the truth found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who abide in it are promised eternal life. As we consider the Antichrist and the dangers of Antichrist teachings, be encouraged by knowing we can know the truth. Be encouraged to cling to the gospel you have heard. Be encouraged to not fall prey to bad teaching, but the truth found in the scriptures. And thank God for the truth we have been given. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Because of this we can know what has been passed down and proclaimed is the truth. 
because it originates not from us, but from God himself. And that is the grand difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. A false teacher and Antichrist will teach things other than what God has given. A true teacher will give what God has provided, knowing that it is altogether sufficient for us and for our salvation and for life. Now this leads us to the second point. The previous point was specifically geared toward the deniers of Jesus. This one will focus on the confessors. The confession that they are called to is the gospel that they had heard from the beginning. This gospel is what is to abide in these confessors. Yet consider what John says specifically about abiding. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In this we see just how powerful the gospel message is. It is what is to abide in them, in us. It is enough to cause those who have it to abide in the Father and in the Son. Further, um, one of the commentators I read, Gabro, he makes a significant point that there is a difference in living and abiding. Living is so generic. Yet to abide implies that it is Christ himself who is the foundation, the root, the vine of our lives. It is by this we are able to live at all. In Christ, who is the eternal life, we are to have our own life. It is only when we allow him to be the Christ that we can have this life. And a good, I, I tried to think of a good way to try to explain this, and the only way that I could was to go to John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so proclaim to to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be in full. How beautiful is that statement? And that puts all of what John is saying into perspective. John has repeatedly shown two things. The first is the necessity of the gospel to abide in us, and the evidence that it does abide in us is that we will abide in it. It is when Jesus Christ abides in us that we are able to have life and have it abundantly. It is when he is in us we are able to live according to his word. It is when he is the root of our lives that we can follow his commandments. Without Christ first abiding in us, it would be impossible for us to live lives of love, mercy, grace, and joy. But as it is, he abides in us through the proclamation of the gospel. It is the gospel which has such power, and it has such power because God is the creator of it. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working through it, through us and in us. The application in all of this is to let that which you heard abide in you. Don't let yourselves be rooted in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let him be the great cause of your life. Don't fall for anything less than Jesus. Don't allow yourself to be cheated by some cheap trick. Instead, know the one in whom you have confessed. Let the message you heard abide in you, and in this way you can abide in it. Christ is truly the foundation. He is the vine. Such a wonderful thing to consider. The truth can abide in us. It can change us. It can transform us from bearing bad fruit to bearing good fruit. So go, bear good fruit for all to see. And in this way, all can see the transformation which comes from the truth abiding in us and us abiding in it. This is our anointing and the promise for those in whom the truth abides is eternal life. This leads us to the gospel. The logical conclusion of the gospel, which has been proclaimed to us all, is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. When we confess Jesus, we must acknowledge all of what he said, not just bits and pieces. We are to acknowledge our sin and our desperate need. We are to acknowledge Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer, the one in whom we are to live and move and breathe. He cannot just be an accessory. He must be all of who he has claimed to be. Nothing else will do. He must be all of himself. The gospel begins with our origins. God created all the cosmos by the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to bear his image. Because God is the God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, morality, and shows Hesed, we can as well. Likewise, it is here that we find the reason for the sanctity, the dignity, and the worth to all human life. Yet, like God, we are also able to choose. We could either follow God in obedience in life or follow sin into disobedience and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that sorrowful choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is because of our sin we continue to accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. And not just a feeling of guilt, but of true guilt. God could have left us in this state, but instead... He sent the crux of the gospel. He sent his light and his word into the darkness. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. By his blood we are cleansed from our sins. By his sacrifice we have propitiation, so we are no longer under the wrath of God, and by him we are made righteous before our God. Our relationships are being restored, and through his victory in life over death, we can have victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle of bearing good fruit, According to the word of God. We are to walk in step with the spirit. Walking as Jesus walked in love. We are to turn our love from our sins. To turn it toward God and each other. Likewise. We are to have faith in Christ. We must recognize our complete and total dependence upon the son of God for our salvation. We must recognize our inability to attain the glory of God by our deeds. And that is. It is not what we do but what Christ has done. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. If we remain in disobedience in these things, we will only experience condemnation. None can stand before God with only their deeds in hand, for only Christ is completely righteous, while even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags. None can stand before God apart from the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous. Because of this, any who go before God apart from Christ go to judgment. Yet, if we are obedient to God, in these things we find no condemnation. Instead, we find the love of God reserved only for His Son, Jesus Christ. We find victory over sin in this life. We become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will experience the peace of God forever. My encouragement to you is to let the truth abide in you. Don't fall prey to Antichrist teachings which come in from all sides. Test everything according to the scriptures. Don't let Christ become less of who he is. Instead, let him be who he claimed to be, the true Christ, the Messiah, the King, and give all, over th- over, all things over to him in your life. Let him abide in fully in you. And remember that those in whom he abides, abides also in him and our promised eternal life. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for true teachings. We thank you for your wisdom and for your grace and through your mercy, um, by whom you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Lord, let all the people here, let all of this congregation abide in him. Don't let false teachings come in, Lord. Wolves, are all too often around us. So give us the strength to fight the wolves. And though we may be silly as lambs, we know that our shepherd is good. And you will fight all wolves off with your truth. Again, Lord, let us abide in you. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.